welcome to CityCast, the Smart Cities podcast from CityVerb. In each instalment, we'll be tackling the issues faced by smart cities in the UK and further afield, as well as providing an update on all things CityVerb. Hello and welcome back for another episode of CityCast. This month, we're talking about power in some of its many forms, battery power, pedal power and people power. I'll be catching up with Bruntwood's Bev Taylor about the installation of a shiny new Tesla power pack at Manchester Science Park, as well as riding into virtual reality aboard a Clicks and Links cycling simulation. Later on, we'll also hear from the Robot Orchestra Collective, and hear from them literally in this case, as they play sounds and songs generated from the data produced by our city. First though, let's hear about the latest addition to the Science Park. Hi, I'm standing in the middle of Manchester Science Park Central Campus on a beautiful sunny day and I'm joined here by Bev Taylor who is the Head of Energy and Environment for Bromwood and MSP and the lead for the Energy and Environment theme on the CityVerb project. We are here standing next to a very large white shiny metal box that Bev is going to tell us all about. Yeah, hi Vicky. Um, our, our white box is actually a, our brand new Tesla battery. It's a Tesla power pack so it's made up of lots of smaller batteries that fit into the slots inside each of the cages that you can see in front of me. And I think people will be surprised by quite how large this is. Yeah it's it takes up the space of a, around a, a normal car parking space but it's the, the size of a, a sort of a white transit van to give you an idea of its its size. Um, it's a 200 kilowatt battery so it will provide 200 kilowatts of continuous power to the building. That doesn't mean much probably to most people, but the building at the moment is probably using about 130, 140 kilowatts. So if we moved it onto the battery, it would it would power all of the building on its own. So the battery would basically run the building uh, without any energy from the grid. That sounds pretty amazing. I understand this is a relatively groundbreaking move here at MSP. Uh, it's been an ambition of mine to get a battery for a, for a long time. Um, I think. This is technology that we'll start to see developed across the MSP portfolio, across Bruntwood, across the city and, and to be honest, across the UK. Um, as we move more towards decentralised energy systems and move away from reliance on the national grid, uh, I think battery technology coupled with something like photovoltaics on the roofs or, or ground source heat pumps, air source heat pumps, this really will start to be the norm. And you say there, Bev, about moving away from reliance on the grid. What, why, do, why is that an issue? Why do we need to move away from that reliance that we have currently? Well, national grid's already under, under strain and we see things on the TV around uh, building things like Hinkley Point, the new nuclear power station. But if you look back at how the grid has developed, it's a very linear system. It's, it's composed of generation equipment like a power station. We have distribution and transmission, the sort of power lines that we see as we're driving around, uh, the pylons and whatnot. And then we use the energy at the end. As, as things develop, as our use of energy changes, I think we're going to see lots of localised energy systems and, and something that moves away from this reliance on one central system. Um, we're, we're seeing this on very small scales now, but I think we'll see whole cities start moving towards a decentralised system going forward. So can you tell us a bit about the kind of difference that this power pack will make here, I guess, in terms of kind of carbon dioxide reduction, cost savings, anything else in there? So the, the idea is that this battery will be the first in a series of uh, measures going in both in Bright Building itself and across the park. So we're going to couple this building with some solar panels on the roof. 
with the idea that the solar panels will generate electricity during the day, feed into the battery so that we've got energy stored when we most want to use it. Now that's really important both from um, an emissions perspective, we're using more renewable sources, but from a cost perspective as well. Energy costs are starting to rise considerably and I expect costs to continue on an upward curve. Being able to mitigate those costs at particularly peak times is going to be really important and it's, um, it's a win-win for us and for our customers. If we can make the cost of occupation of our buildings less, then clearly it may be a, a selling point for, for the park. So it, it ticks a lot of boxes for us, both on a sustainability side, it ticks a lot of boxes from the cost side, and to play our part towards the, the Manchester's carbon reduction strategy. So for one power pack, the potential is obviously kind of huge. Um, I'm wondering if there's opportunity to use these installations, not just to power buildings, but perhaps other things in the future, cars, bikes, and if that's something that you're already thinking of within your kind of role at Brontwood and MSP. In, in the uh, science park, um, in the building across the road, Greenhaze building, we've got uh, a thing called a vehicle-to-grid battery charger. So that allows us to take the energy from a car battery um, and either plug it into the national grid at times when the grid needs it or plug it into the building in the same way that we're using this battery over at Bright. And I think if we think about the potential for uh, electric vehicles to be used in that way as sources of movable power if you like we'll, I think we'll start to see this explosion of static batteries like, like this one and this movable battery capacity via things like bikes and cars and, and certainly along the corridor we're, with the electric bike scheme and with our vehicle to grid scheme I think we're very much at the forefront of, of showing how that technology might work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's great about this is you can see, obviously, the relevance for landlords, but actually for just Joe Public as well. This is something that all of us should be caring about. So, you know, you talked a bit about kind of the move to more kind of decentralised power systems. What role will kind of smart power grids and networks play in cities of the future? So is it going to be a case that, you know, individual landlords have to invest in a power pack like this one and it's kind of every man for himself? Or, you know, how does that all come together when we're thinking about sort of a larger city scale? I think that's a really good point. And if we look at some of the things, certainly in Manchester, so Andy Burnham, the mayor, has, has made his own carbon ambitions plain with the, the, the plan to try to get Manchester to be... Uh, carbon zero city ASAP and I think within that we're, we're looking at these systems to try to provide uh, stability to a grid that's already under pressure we've talked about the cost and the emission savings but the, the more that we can move towards this microgrid decentralized energy concept the more we start to link generation and consumption together so in an ideal world, here at the park, I want to create a, a virtual power plant whereby we've got all of the, the people who are occupants of the buildings operating, if you like, as energy traders of the, in their own right within a virtual power plant environment, where we've got a nice mix of generation equipment via things like solar, we've got the storage, and we've got a more informed user. And the, the term that's often used within... Um, the energy world for these people is the idea that we will create prosumers. They'll be producers of energy as well as consumers of energy. But it's hard, it's hard to make that transition unless you've got something like this. So I see very much the park with 
we've got a lot of people here who are early adopters of this type of tech has been the ideal place to start trialing some of this and I think very soon again back to back to the mayor he's expressed a desire to have an energy company he wants to look at how we can utilize um, storage solutions in a in an aggregator capacity I think we're really well down the road of, of recognizing that this is the way forward uh, and hopefully we'll be at the forefront. Bev, so one of the things that I've noticed standing here is that uh, it's very, very quiet. It hardly seems to be emitting any noise and it's quite hard to imagine that something so seemingly silent is uh, capable of such amazing things. Yeah, the battery is virtually silent. Uh, if you can hear some noise in the background, it's, it's some kit that's been used in another part of the park. But yeah, all of the batteries that are installed need to undergo specific tests for sound um, as part of the planning process and, and yes the battery is virtually silent and it operates like that in both charge and discharge modes so even as it's uh, feeding energy back into the building it will still be still be completely silent and I think that's one of the other benefits of this type of tech and why we will see its widespread adoption. Bev, thank you so much for joining me out here on this beautiful sunny day. For listeners who want to find more about the Power Pack, then you can read our recent blog post up on the Cityburg website about it. Thank you, Bev. Thanks, Vicky. So, from battery power to pedal power, we hot-footed our way into the centre of town to see what clicks and links have been creating in their very own virtual reality. I'm in Manchester's northern quarter, the HQ of Clicks and Links, and I'm joined here today by Billy White and Sam Lee. Billy is currently sat on the distinctive orange-wheeled mobikes that are commonly seen here around the streets of Manchester. Um, so, Billy, perhaps you can tell me a little bit about what I'm looking at and what it is that you're doing right now. Okay. Hello, Vicky. So, I'm currently sat on, like you said, uh, one of the mo bikes that we have here in manchester which is our bike sharing scheme alongside that we have a virtual reality headset now what we do is we invite people to come and sit on the mo bike and they can have a cycling experience along oxford road in manchester but not just manchester uh, anywhere in the world fantastic and i know that you've been taking this around to a few different shows over the kind of past year or so doing the city verb event trail yeah so we've been taking it to exhibitions to events we've taken it to uh, Innovate UK, Prolific North Live, so big exhibitions like that, but also smaller sort of workshop exhibitions like that, getting involved, getting kids on it, taking it everywhere really, we've been up and down the country. Um, and I know that your work has been nominated for an award as well. So we've got two nominations for the Big Chip Award here in Manchester. Um, the first award is um, the most disruptive and innovative idea, and the second one is the best user experience, so hopefully, you know. Speaking of user experience, do you mind if I jump on and have a go, Billy? Absolutely not. Come on, jump on. Okay. So you ready? Yep, all ready. Is that comfortable? Yep, that's good. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Now just take it nice and easy to start with. Get yourself okay. used to it and have a good time. Oh, I'm off. Oh, so it's got sound as well, which I hadn't expected. Which is, oh, I'm crashing here. Oh my God, I'm actually crashing. Okay, I think what we're establishing is that I'm not particularly good at riding a bicycle. But it is incredibly realistic, isn't it? Aside from the fact that I can't cycle in a straight line. <laughs> That's just to warn everybody that I'm coming and can't really be trusted to cycle in a straight line. But it is really impressive being able to see all of the buildings and you know, it feels very realistic, especially with the sound experience in there as well. 
So, Billy, some of these buildings look pretty familiar. How is it that you've managed the kind of the mapping of this to, to create this Oxford Road visualisation? So there's, uh, there's basically two versions of the, the model, if you like. Um, the one that you're sorting through at the moment is mm -hmm. a 3D model provided by Arup. Now, they've, um, to scale, mapped Oxford Road, the corridor. Um, and, you know, it's a really detailed, nice, pretty model. Whereas, on the other hand, Ordnance Survey have provided us with... Uh, a point cloud scan version of Oxford Road. Now, that is like sort of the most accurate sort of scanning technology you mm -hmm. can get. And with that, you can sort of collect real valuable data because, you know, you are essentially cycling in that scene and instance at that time. This is a obviously very good, fun, unique experience, but um, is there any kind of practical applications of this? Is it, is it just a gimmick, Billy? Well, you know what, we're looking at doing a lot of things with it at the moment, but I think one of the main things is for us is testing cycle infrastructure in the city or just city infrastructure in general you know I don't know if you can see but where you're cycling now is you're coming to a junction now you just imagine in the virtual space we have the option to change that junction to a roundabout mm -hmm. or move the cycle lane in a different area to where you are right now and with that we have something powerful because we can prevent sort of infrastructure disasters from happening so they go and spend a lot of money building new cycle routes and then to find out that it doesn't work yeah let's just put people in and test it first um, another thing we're looking at is, you know, how can we use it more of an, as an engagement tool to get people cycling? How can we show off, I don't know, let's say Mobike in a different city and say, yeah. let's get this bike sharing scheme here in Birmingham or somewhere else, you know. Um, and then there's fitness as well. Can we make fitness more exciting, that sort of thing? Yeah. And I think from my perspective as well, there's also an argument around as we're trying to encourage people to get out, be more active about helping people to familiarise around it. You know, Oxford Road is a busy road. How do you help people to get more familiar about it in a safe environment? Yeah. Um, so Sam, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what all this means for TFGM. You know, we heard Billy talking about ability to kind of look at it from a sort of travel planning kind of perspective. What are your thoughts in terms of how this might be able to be used within the city? It's a really interesting use case. I think just to start off, this particular project is in the spirit of CityVerb. It's collaboration between partners. Billy was actually on this final year course when he had this idea, and we actually sat down and created you know, the uh, initial prototype that became a real product, bringing together different partners such as the university, Orton Survey, and the local SME, you know, creating jobs you know, within the northern, northern um, powerhouse area. From a practical use case point of view, we see huge amount of application um, virtual reality is, is very gimmicky right now, it's almost kind of like a game, but for us it allows us to test new infrastructure before we even build it, saving millions of pounds. Um, other solutions, one of the biggest challenges we have with cyclists is safety and the perception of safety. Being able to cycle down somewhere they're really familiar with builds up their confidence so when they actually hit the road they know where to look, they know where to turn and that hopefully they won't be running those red lights. So it's all really excited human-centric design and human experiences that we're capturing and utilising to help make our mobility system much better. Oh, gents, that sounds amazing. Um, I've certainly had a lot of fun trying this out. I'm off to go and uh, get out a few more miles on the bike. This isn't the only unusual location that Mobikes have been cropping up in the City Verve project. The data they produce is being used for a whole host of things. We talk about data a lot in City Verve, and with good reason, it's a pretty significant part of our project. But it's not always easy to get from the abstract concept of data, or the numbers, dots and dashes, to something more easily visualised and understood. 
We've talked before on this podcast about some of the ways that data can be visualised and better understood. Through Nahum Matsuda's algorithmic everyday poems or the bold physical gestures of the super gestures performance. Today though, we're going to be hearing what our city's data might sound like. So I am joined here now by two members of the Robot Orchestra Collective, Erema and Harry. Uh, welcome to the City Verb podcast. Uh, perhaps we can kick off with um, telling our listeners a little bit about what the Robot Orchestra Collective is all about. So Robot Orchestra is a project that started a couple of years ago in Manchester. Uh, I was working with Daniel George, who's an engineer at University of Manchester. Uh, I, at the time, was at University of Manchester as well. And we wanted to get young people involved in engineering. And we thought a great way to do that would be through making recycled instruments Mm -hmm. and come up with making this orchestra. So kids from across Manchester got involved, made these robot uh, orchestra instruments, everything from, I don't know, a Pringles pot that would become a drum bot. Um, And then we had the challenge of how do you bring that together as a piece of music. What was really fantastic with that is that um, people like uh, Steve Summers and Caro C, who are musicians and engineers, but they're also teachers and educators, they were part of that um, robot orchestra collective at that time. And they helped those young people to make the instruments and to make the music sound great. Um, And so I thought we had this opportunity with some data from CityVerve, this hub that collects data from around the city to um, make a new piece of music specifically for the opening and the launch of a tech space and incubator up the road on Oxford Road. Um, So that was a real challenge for us and we we rose to the challenge and we thought yes let's let's give it a go let's do something with it and so the collective kind of involves different people at different times. Uh, In this case uh, it was Steve, myself, uh, Caro C and uh, Harry who's who's here with us. My way in uh, to the Robot Orchestra Collective was originally hired as, um, I guess you'd call it like a software patch developer to sort of uh, develop these ideas which would take the you know the raw data and turn them into musical um, phrases or even just like, you know, audible formats uh, to begin with. And made a few patches uh, to give to Caro, see, in order for her to compose with and then somewhere along the line we got talking about different ideas and realized that you know we could have the data being played live on stage go into this modular synth and it would just add you know like another layer to the to the piece
So it all sounds incredibly clever. Um, we're sat here looking at the orchestra now. Um, I'm wondering if you can perhaps describe it to our listeners, because I suspect we're conjuring up all sorts of images, ideas of robots sitting there playing pianos and the like. So perhaps you can just kind of give a bit of an um, audio tour around what the orchestra setup looks like for us. So Steve from Noisy Toys, he makes these recycled robotic instruments and we've got a few of them that we're looking at today so a couple of them are violins mm -hmm. and um, we've also got some parts that have kind of been recovered from from broken pianos um, but Harry could tell us maybe a little bit more about specifically these instruments and the kind of sounds that they make but also Steve's craft which is interactive which you know a bit more about than I do. Yeah, so it's all based around like the idea of interactivity, uh, some audience participation, and just having something more tangible and tactile for people with no or little musical knowledge to start playing instruments. So some of it's uh, based around mechanical workings in terms of like you press a button and that sends some fans spinning around that pluck violin strings, and then there's also some other aspects of sort of hardware analog synthesis um, the nose tester he calls it he's got which is basically a broken circuit uh, that powers a synthesizer and when you touch these two metal prongs you complete the circuit and then that's where you get audio so yeah it's all all interactive stuff and there's loads of different aspects to it and loads of different sound modules and broken hard drives and there's even a few rubber bands in there that you can come and <laughs> plink and pling and it makes a, makes a noise. Fantastic. It's um, a true kind of feat of engineering. Um, and I guess you know, we've touched a little bit on the City Verb project and using data um, to kind of create music. Um, to what extent was that a first for you and this idea of sort of taking data and converting that into a, into a composition that was, I suppose, effectively suitable for performing live? So it wasn't a first for me in terms of actually doing data sonification, I've worked with it before. It was a first for me to make something contemporary and like approachable for listeners or to develop, you know, ideas that would let other people compose um, contemporary approachable music. Caro C, um, in a kind of previous rendition of Robot Orchestra, when she was working with young kids, she actually sampled a lot of the sounds that the robots had made and she composed mm -hmm. from those samples. And so when we were given this opportunity to do something with data, I was thinking actually, you know, Caro would be someone who'd be perfect to be able to think, okay, how, what, how could we do something with that data? And then chatting to Steve, who'd made all these instruments, he said, oh, we really need to get another person involved. So Harry was new to Robot Orchestra Collective, and that's how it, you know, it grows and expands. Sure. We could bring in new people. Um, and so it was kind of bringing together um, the idea that we would look at some of the data sets so we, we looked at the um, cycling journeys around Manchester, so those Mo bikes that mm -hmm. are out there. And Caro picked a Friday night, 24 hours in August, so a kind of summer, summer time. Yeah. Um, and so we picked the number of journeys of those Mo bikes, but also the, um, how, how frequently those journeys were happening over time, um, and used that as the basis of a piece. So it's kind of durational, time-based. Um, but what's really lovely about the way that the musicians have worked is also to um, bring in sounds of the city alongside that data to um, 
give us a real impression of what the you know what that day over 24 hours would kind of feel like and I feel like it feels quite unique to Manchester you know you'll kind of hear sounds of the Manchester trams in there and and things like that we actually had a one not an instrument but in the previous rendition we had a, a tram light that we'd recycled um, and that was keeping time for the human elements of the, okay. the wider orchestra yeah. because they needed to have a, a conductor even yeah. though we'd had a robotic conductor as well. So there were kind of all these other elements that have been kind of, kind of coming back into this new piece, which was great. I mean, it sounds incredible, um, and listening to the piece, um, you're right, it really brings the city together, it's very textural, you can hear all the different layers of activity going on there. Um, Harry, perhaps you can tell us a little bit how you went about what the process is from converting sort of a load of raw data into an amazing piece of music, how, what that kind of data sort of um, conversion process and compos composition process entails for you. Yeah, okay, so we were um, mainly working in terms of the data within MIDI, which is like a digital way of quantifying and keeping time of music or allocating, you know, notation to a numbered system. So luckily, the the amount of riders per day data fit within the MIDI spectrum, which is zero to 127. So all of those numbers were within that frame. And then to make sort of musical motifs with it, we originally were thinking rhythmic ideas um, for drum patterns and loops, etc. So the first thing I did was to make a sort of sequencer or like a random rhythm generator basically, which would have these numbers spat into it. Those numbers would directly correlate to a note on that MIDI spectrum. So if you had that MIDI spectrum filled with um, sort of drum hits or bike uh, sounds we used in the end, um, to sort of tie in with the aesthetics of the idea, these would be randomly triggered and you'd get sort of rhythmic patterns coming from it and stuff like that. So that was useful in terms of the pre-composed material and, you know, composing whilst being inspired by the data. And then the other way it came about is live through the use of the modular synth. And those those same sort of numbers from the data were still being mapped to notes and then they're being sent out of the computer and turned into controlled voltage in order to work with the, the modular synth and to get it producing sounds. Um, with that stuff, it was definitely more tonal and sort of note-based, so we had to then re-sort of pick through the data in terms of, you know, the numbers that would work within the given key that we were writing in. Mm -hmm. So it was like tuned data by the end of it. That was a live aspect, but it was, you know, both sides were handy. It sounds fascinating and that idea of, as you say, being kind of inspired by the data, I think is a really interesting one that, um, you know, it must be quite 
I suppose, a very different approach to normal composition in terms of that kind of random allocation of notes and stuff like that. And I guess I'd be interested from your experiences more generally in terms of doing this type of work, how the different types of data sets that you get, or the different types of data influence kind of the final output and that, that degree to which it's random versus inspired and controlled by. Yeah, so it's an interesting sort of um, shift in the way that you can choose to work. Like I really only choose to work with it in terms of like a, a starting off point that possibly is like out of your comfort zone if you don't understand the data you're getting. Um, and then it can really just inspire anything from like musical structure to like the length of the piece or the concept of, of the piece in terms of sound content. Or you can use it, you know, I've used it more technically where these numbers actually like do things to the sound by stretching it right out and changing the sound in different ways. So it's like a, there's not really an answer as to whether like it's, you write something that is like clean cut data and it sounds like these these shifts and things, or if you just use it as like a creative jumping off point. Oh, it's fascinating, really clever stuff. Um, and I know you were performing live with all of this gear last week, so I'm interested to know kind of what sort of response that you get from a kind of live audience when they're seeing and experiencing this from the first time. I know, Erima, we were talking before and saying there was kind of, a, aside from the actual visual spectacle of the orchestra, you also had a visual kind of element to the, to the performance. So we had um, this structure of the day from kind of morning to night that Caro had sort of put in place she's really good at creating a, a structure and so she'd kind of given us this sketch which also highlights the data and we had these these data sets um so the number of cyclists and the number of journeys in this day in August over time and so um you know you've got this idea that people are kind of reluctantly waking up at the beginning of the day uh then things get a lot busier the traffic starts up the city is starting to get uh, come alive um, and then going through into the afternoon and the evening when people are ha hoping to get home and impatient yeah. and things are kind of really busy. And then we've got kind of elements like, you know, people having a drink, getting back on the tube and then kind of going home again. And so I worked with uh, Caroline Ward, who's a interaction designer. She's actually at Royal College of Art. And the composers had said to us that they really wanted to have a way in for the audience to think about time and the durational element. They suggested the idea of a clock. And so that brief was taken to Caroline to kind of really think about how could we convey in a sort of not completely obvious way what we're experiencing a little bit. And so she kind of added two elements. And, and one was to think about breathing patterns. So when you're asleep... Um, at night your breathing pattern is different from when you're awake in the daytime so she introduced two different breathing patterns to devise what we're calling a kind of data creature that changes and stretches over time for the piece but also is changing as the light changes and we kind of go from dusk to dawn through the day and back to midnight and then kind of start again so that the creature and its breathing patterns is also responding to the data but hopefully kind of getting people a bit more connected to the piece mm -hmm. so as people you know we care about our environment I'd love that Manchester was a bit greener so if we're also thinking about breathing and cycling in the city and that's a great healthy thing how do we also then consciously think about making that cycling experience a really positive one for cyclists in Manchester I'd love that we could you know make the the city more of a city that's that works well for cy cyclists yeah. so yeah so being a little bit environmental about the recycled element but also kind of thinking about breathing patterns and cycling in the city 
Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, and I think just the kind of the level of thought and consideration that's gone into it is incredible. And I love the way that it's been really kind of thought through in terms of making it relevant to Manchester and really kind of bringing to life that data. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour around Manchester this time round, and I hope you've been able to keep up. Speaking of tours, if you haven't checked out our brand new augmented reality walking tour yet of some of Manchester's iconic innovations, then what are you waiting for? Check out our website or last month's edition of CityCast for more info. A big thank you to all of our guests this month, and if you'd like to find out more about the CityVerb project and some of the other amazing creative things that we've got going on, then you can head over to our shiny new website at cityverb.org.uk. There you'll find out everything you need to know about Manchester and our efforts to make it even smarter than ever. You can download and subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and Acast and listen again on the CityVerve Mixcloud and Soundcloud pages. A quick Google search will get you there. We're always looking out for suggestions of topics to cover, so if you have a burning question you'd like answered on a future podcast, then do get in touch over on Twitter using the at CityVerve handle. Until next time, stay smart.